This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Cullum. This week, I sit down with best-selling author Andy Crouch. Andy is also a partner for theology and culture at Praxis. Today, we discuss concepts found in Andy's newest book, The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationships in a Technology World. You'll hear about the superpower zone technology often launches us into and the impact that has on our real-life experiences. You'll also hear the innate need of humans to be recognized and how technology has displaced that, along with some redemptive moves we can make in our impersonal world. I deeply appreciate Andy's thoughtfulness and wisdom in the area of technology's impact on the image bearer of God, and I think you will too. I've mentioned a new free resource I have available the last few weeks, but if you're new to Grace Enough, I've curated a list of eight books that were influential in ways that surprised me. Because I interview a lot of authors, and I appreciate the time and research they've put in to writing their books. You can receive that resource by clicking the link in the show notes or at graceenoughpodcast.com slash books. Good afternoon, Andy, and welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. It is great to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> it is. I know. We've had a few hiccups, and I tell my listeners all the time, they're like, start recording before you actually start recording because we have so much conversation in advance. <laughs> But yes, here yes, we yes. are, and we are going to talk about your new book, which I, um, I mean, so many people are familiar with TechWise Family. I know people in my area are, uh, my listeners are. And so as we jump in today, talking about your newest book, you start with recognition is the first human quest. And I found that really, really interesting. Mm. Uh, so I want you to share a little bit about that innate that's just in us. We need face-to-face recognition and kind of how, how that's been hijacked a little bit with technology. Yes, totally. Well, uh, the book starts with really one of the most fascinating things that we've learned more about in the last just couple of decades. You know, So when I was born in the late 1960s, if my mother was listening to the conventional wisdom, doctors at that time would have said, you know, a baby arrives, they can't really see anything. They can't, they can't mm-hmm. really do much cognitively, uh, you know, just take care of their baby. It'll get more interesting later <laughs> was sort of the message. Uh, it turns out there's this amazing research that's been done on the way that babies, uh, all of us uh, begin our lives um, already prepared to look for a face, a human mm. face. And within minutes of birth, if you put a face in, now the one thing you can't do when your baby is focus your, your eyes. You can't adjust your focus. So, but, but 
we're built with this six to eight inch focus mm-hmm. distance uh, when we're born. Well, that turns out to be the perfect distance when a baby's being held uh, by its mother or, or another caregiver right. uh, in that posture that everybody just instinctively knows how to hold a baby. At least I think it's instinctive uh, <laughs> for mothers. It is. And that baby is in the perfect place to look for a face. And that's what they're doing. That's like the moment their eyes open. So the idea that we arrive um you know, totally empty uh, neurologically is wrong. And then the idea mm. that we arrive primed neurologically, like our, our, our whole brain, nervous system, vision. And by the way, if, if babies are born without sight, because of course some are, they, they actually replicate this with touch mm-hmm. to, to find a face and respond to a face. It's just the most crazy idea. Yeah. And I think really gets to the heart of what I wanted this book to be about, which is the effect of our technological world on personhood. That is what it is to be a person. And when you start reading people who have thought carefully about this question, which is kind of one of these deep philosophical questions, what is it to be a person? One of the things they always talk about is relationality or relationship that people are not actually persons. Uh, we're not individuals first. We, we are formed through our relationships with others. So yeah, I wanted to start the book by just saying, you know, every one of us was born in, in this beautiful phrase that I got from my friend, Kurt Thompson, who's a psychiatrist yes. and studies the uh, what's called interpersonal neurobiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are all born looking for someone looking for us. Mm. And <laughs> it's just amazing. And I think it's what technology has disrupted, as you said, because the interesting thing about our technology, especially now, is it has gotten pretty good at simulating the the personal relationship that we're looking for. So, you know, my phone also recognizes my face. (laughs) My, My devices respond to me and they kind of lure me in with their attention to me and the way that they prompt me to interact with them. And while that can be useful, I think it's actually derailed uh, so often the things that matter most. And this book is ultimately a, a kind of deep story of how technology, though though very good in and of itself, ended up derailing the things that matter most, which all have to do with us being persons designed for relationship and love. Isn't it so interesting that as technology has continued to advance in that way that our study of brain science Hmm. has also developed so much. And honestly, just the last 20 years, like a lot's been going on for a long time, but I even remember I have a niece who is deaf and she um, Hmm. is adopted from India. And so she had absolutely zero language skills. Oh yeah, sure. When my brother-in-law and sister-in-law like met her on the streets. And Hmm. so learning about reactive attachment disorder Mm -hmm. when she was tiny, tiny was so new that people were like, what are you even talking about? But the brain, like her brain, her face never attached to someone else's face. Exactly. Wow. 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 Yeah. And it is interesting that we've learned all this, but, but I would actually say only a small part of what we've learned about how, how we are actually made in a way designed, I would say, um, mm-hmm. has made it its way into the design of our technology. So parts Absolutely. of it, have, uh, you know, so how you get people to respond to so-called intermittent rewards, which are, uh, you know, this mm-hmm. thing where the, 
the slot machine doesn't always give you a prize. <laughs> uh, that's you know called intermittent yes. reinforcement. Well, that's the way Instagram works. That's the mm. way all of your notifications are now designed to give you intermittent reinforcement. So we, we learned part of the thing, the gambling parts, <laughs> like the compulsion. The unhealthy parts. parts. That's the unhealthy right. parts. But all the things we now know about what it takes for human beings to really be healthy uh, for largely, well, because they don't in any easy way turn into profit for device and technology manufacturers haven't been implemented yet, mm. even though we know so much more now about how we're wired for this in, in such deep ways. It is That's very right. interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, you do, you talk about in the book, a contemplative exercise that you did in the airport that yeah. I just absolutely loved uh, where you were walking around and just taking the time to look in people's face and in your mind, say image bearer. Yeah. Share a little bit of that story with us and just how yeah. even taking the time to do that does something to us. Mm. I, I need you to talk about it because it was really <laughs> sure. impactful. It was really impactful. Wow. Yeah, it was a long layover. It was a winter night at Chicago O'Hare and I, I, I wanted to get some exercise, but I thought, I wonder if I could have some spiritual exercise, you might say, while I'm walking. And I, I realized you can walk for, it actually turns out, several miles yeah, behind, right. behind security. All those, all those little piers, you could say, you know, all the different causeways of gates. So I started walking and I thought, okay, I'm going to try to look at every face I pass in a non-creepy way, right. <laughs> like just briefly... <laughs> Yeah. Just briefly glance and take in that that person and then say, just in my head, as you said, image bearer. And I honestly was not prepared for what an emotionally overwhelming experience it was going to be to pass. I, I think thousands of people by the end of the walk, I don't know, certainly many hundreds, mm. um, so many different, like there's so many different kinds of people in airports. There are busy people and slow people. There are old people and very, very young people. There are mm -hmm. people who are there to work, um, you know, because they work in the airport. There's people who are on, on vacation. And and the only thing they all have in common is they wish they were somewhere else. I think. <laughs> <laughs> they're all, you know, they're getting out play. I don't, the people who work in the airports, unfortunately, rarely look like they're really happy to have that job. It's kind of a tough place to work, I think. And, mm. and to just behold each of them for, for a moment, and realize this is another facet of you know what the Bible calls the image of God in this person, then in this person, then in this person. Mm -hmm. It both gave me this incredible appreciation for the nobility of human beings. And you know, sometimes when you're a crowded airport, you're just kind of annoyed by the presence of all these other people. But it kind of transfigured that sense of, oh, it's very crowded and busy and noisy into no, this place is absolutely stuffed with the image of God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that was very powerful. But then there's also this tragic feeling to it, because as you try to guess, you know, what's the story behind that person's face and, and what we can guess of their life, you just always feel, oh, there's, there's some sadness here. Um, mm. Maybe not with the smallest children, but with everyone else. And I really wasn't prepared for it. <laughs> <laughs> and by the end of the walk, I thought I need to do this more often because I'm going through the world um, transactionally. I'm going through the world unreflectively. And I'm in this world that is constantly presenting me reminders of the diverse and complex image of God and the beautiful and, and terrible story of what it is to be human. And I just, I wall myself off from that often. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I've tried to keep doing it. Uh, I don't do it every time I'm in an airport, but I, it's more of a habit than it used to be. 
Yeah. Well, and taking the time to ascribe that personhood to people yes. instead of you're just something. Yes, 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 exactly. Exactly. There's this uh, philosopher named uh, Spamon, Robert Spamon, I think it is, who says person is the difference between something and someone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that's a very well chosen word. You're not just something, you're someone. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's sad to say that it takes us intentionally slowing mm. down and practicing wow. that because we just spin into a whole different mode very quickly. That's so good. Yes. I, but I think that's, um, that's very profound. I think intentionality is the essence of all good things, actually. And I was saying to someone who had just recently entered their 20s, I don't remember exactly who it was, but I was mm. beholding and contemplating them at the time. <laughs> and, um, and I said, you know, one of the sort of sad and beautiful things you learn when you enter adulthood is that all good things are intentional. When you're a child, the world, if you're fortunate to grow up in a reasonably healthy environment, it often just seems like good things just happen without you having to intend them or choose them. But as you come of age, you realize, oh, from now on, you know, like if you go to college where there are just all these young people around you and you're friends with lots of them, but then you graduate and you're like, oh, if I'm ever going to have friends again, it's yes. going to require <laughs> yes. a level of intentionality that I didn't have to have when I was just sort of in school and other people provided the context for that, you know? Mm -hmm. But I actually think this goes all the way down to the, the world itself. Like God, as, um, in my understanding as a Christian, God intended the world and in a way, the Holy Spirit every day intends the good of the world. And without that, it would all fall apart. Mm. And that's our work too, as image bearers, is actually to intend a kind of attention and beholding and contemplation. Because if we don't, we will just begin transacting and using and ultimately exploiting. Like, what, yeah. what good are you to me? Or what good is this thing like being to me? Rather than, no, mm. you are good. You are good in yourself. Before I could ever make a claim on you, I have to just behold you. And that takes a lot of, a uh, lot of intention. It really does. Well, and I, I hate to even leave this moment and go into something else that you talk about because it, it's so powerful, but this superpower zone <laughs> that you have spoken of that we kind of launch into when we enter this, I don't even know if you want to call it social media world, just mm -hmm. media mm -hmm. world in general flesh that out for a little bit. Like what happens to us? Cause it's really great to think like, yes, we all think we become Superman. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was with this technology developer a few years ago. I was like, so what do you think you're really building like under the surface of the, the thing? And he said, well, human beings want superpowers and technology gives us superpowers. And uh. I've heard this more and more often. And it's so true. So if you think about a superpower, the way I would define it is uh, way more effect with way less effort. So I can get way more done in the world, but with less of myself in a way, like I, I just wish for it to be and it happens. Or, you know, I press the little triangle in the Netflix inter interface and a whole show comes to life in front of my eyes. And all I did was press a triangle. And then of course, at the end, there's another triangle to press and get it again and get it again. And so much of the technological world is designed to like reduce effort. Designers talk about low friction interfaces or, you know, one button kind of mm -hmm. interfaces. Um, and at the same time, give us the sensation at least that we are really getting something done. Like we feel productive, we feel engaged. And, and this combination, especially when we kind of enter deeply into it uh, is what I call the superpower zone, which is that feeling of heightened 
effectiveness, um, mm. where you're actually very passive, like uh, in at least one dimension of your being. So maybe I'm working really, really hard on email. I'm answering lots of emails. I feel really in the zone, we say. But of course, if you looked at me, in fact, I remember my son when he was about six years old, he, he came to me and he said, dad, I figured out what your job is. You type on the computer and you talk on the phone. <laughs> And he didn't sound very impressed. <laughs> this did not seem to him like a, a appealing job. Because if you watch me, it's so boring, right? Because now mm -hmm. I feel so engaged, but in fact, my body is doing nothing. nothing. I'm sitting extremely mm -hmm. still. And the truth is sometimes other parts of me also kind of switch off, whether I'm whether it's entertainment or or active entertainment, like playing a video game or cognitive, F, you know, things like uh, reading lots of stuff on social media or whatever. And this superpower zone, I think is significant because it's so close to what I think we're actually designed for, which is like full engagement in the world, but it always involves idling a part of ourselves, like putting part of ourselves on pause, uh, very often our body and our kind of strength mm -hmm. and ability to move through the world. Um, and it's also, as we all have experienced, incredibly compulsion creating, like there's, you, you don't wanna leave, you would rather do this than any other thing, but the things that you give up in order to enter the superpower zone are often what, if we were in our right minds, we would say are the most fulfilling things. So, you know, hmm. a 10 year old playing a video game does not want to go to dinner, <laughs> but in fact, dinner will be so much better. Even at the end of dinner, it's quite possible that 10 year old would say, oh, I really enjoyed dinner tonight, but gosh, getting them to switch out of the superpower zone into the ordinary human life of in the body with other people, with all the uncertainty and vulnerability compared to the like certain response of that video game when you hit that button and have mastered that sequence of actions or whatever, it's just really hard to leave. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has a dream that he'll build a whole universe where we'll never have to leave and we'll have superpowers all the time. But I think when we reflect on the net effect of these times of compulsive pseudo engagement, we don't actually feel that we became someone better in that place, or that we actually accomplished that much in the real world in that place. But technology is going to keep giving us just more and more amazing ways to be in the superpower zone. It's so interesting, even to hear you say that, because I think about myself and my oldest son, who absolutely loves his two hours of tech time that he gets on yeah. Saturdays and Sundays. But he also at the end of that will often, I mean, almost verbally just straight say, like, I feel like trash. <laughs> wow. Oh, I, I understand. I mean, me, well, I felt... and that's why I said me too, because yes, yes. I'm like doing it and doing it and doing it. And then I get done and I'm like, what just happened? I feel yes. awful. I've been sitting on my butt doing and yes. nothing has been accomplished. Wow. But it felt so real at the time. Uh, oh, it's, it's so powerful. And I, I really, I really think it's, um, it's really at the heart of what, especially uh, the problem is technology has gotten really good at this. Like it didn't used to be this way quite as much. It required a little more effort. Um, you know, you think about mm. the difference between a, an old mechanical car that your grandfather might've driven that required yes. a lot of strength and attention and kind of full engagement of the body and the mind and, and the heart and all kinds of things. And now we get in our cars and they're so much simpler, but we also kind of feel more yucky after a few hours of driving, I think, than people did yeah. before because it's so disengaged. 
Um, and it leaves us really behind where we were when we started in terms of our ability to do the next thing with love. Yeah. It's like we have to have a recovery period. Whereas when I do something that's really good for me, like getting out on my bike, which I try to do every day when I can in the nice months of the year in Pennsylvania, um, you know, I get to the end of my bike ride. I've experienced that kind of engagement, but I also feel very ready for the next person yeah. I'm going to be with or the next thing. I also probably need a shower, but after the shower, I'm ready to go. Whereas when I exit that kind of compulsive superpower zone, I, I feel like I'm less human than when I went in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's this is very close to the heart of I think how these uh, these devices are misshaping us, and and mm. and, and also therefore a, a kind of clue to what we need to pursue to be more human, even if we keep using them for certain productive, useful purposes. Yes, yes, just not all all consumed all day <laughs> exactly, long. Right? <laughs> exactly. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, if you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So let's talk about this. How does Jesus describe abundance without dependence? And how does that lead us away from this life of flourishing that God designed? And, and you just kind of spoke about that a little mm -hmm. bit, but I just loved that uh, abundance, abundance without, without dependence. Sounds promising, actually, if I could have all the abundance I want and none of this dependence that complicates my life, wouldn't that be nice? Well, mm -hmm. so I do think, you know, the book kind of the shadow side of our world that I'm writing about the book, it does kind of have these two, two components, power without effort, which is the kind of superpower idea and abundance mm -hmm. without dependence. So you mentioned Jesus, not because he used those words directly. Um, right. And actually, by the way, that particular phrase I got from a friend of mine named John Tyson, who used it. Um, and, and I thought it was so good. That with oh, credit, if you can help me get John on the show, that'd be great. I love oh, John well, Tyson. He's amazing. <laughs> he's amazing. I will try to use my superpowers. That's and, right. uh, get him on. Uh, yeah, well, at least you have his uh, his proxy here because I've learned a lot from John. Mm. And I heard him use that, that phrase in a talk on the subject of mammon. Mammon, M-A-M-M-O-N, um, is this word that uh, Jesus uses when he says one of the most stark and memorable things he said, you cannot serve God and, now a lot of English Bibles will translate it as money, but the interesting thing is, uh, because it does refer to uh, the power in money for sure, but the Greek gospels that report Jesus's words, they, they translate because he was talking in Aramaic and, and they, the Greek evangelists, the people who wrote, wrote down the gospels, write it in Greek, but this word they don't translate. And generally the words we don't translate, we don't, we leave them because they're proper names. Like we wouldn't mm. turn Amber into 
some other word, we would just transliterate it, you might say, if we translated your name into another, another language. language. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that suggests that when Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon, he's not just saying money, the thing or the idea. He's talking about some power at work in the world. <laughs> and hmm. I think what he's talking about is, in a way, the power, invisible you could call it a spiritual kind of power, not in the good sense of the word spiritual, but in the sense of disembodied and yet having real, the ability to make some mysterious effect that whispers in our ears and in, indeed in the structures of whole societies, the promise, as John puts it so well, of abundance without dependence. Mm-hmm. And, and it is very tied to the power of money, that if I have enough money, I imagine, and, and to some extent it's really true, if I have enough money, I can have whatever I want, right? Because money can buy you really probably almost anything, not even if it's not legal. If you have enough money, someone will give it to you mm-hmm. without having to have relationships. So when I walk into a convenience store, maybe in a town I don't live in, I may I won't know a soul in that store. And it's very possible these days I will never even make eye contact with another person, let alone say image bearer, image bearer, right? right. You can go in that, have a totally transactional experience on all sides, walk out with the thing you want as long as you brought money into the store. You you don't actually have to be a person, like a robot could go do it for you. And as long as the robot had money. And this dream, um, I think is very powerful that that, oh, I could have what I want without relationship because relationship is vulnerable. Relationship mm-hmm. is fragile. Relationship requires intention and intentionality. Mm-hmm. But what if I could have all the abundance I want without that? And that is what our modern world is built to deliver. Like, yes, we'll teach you how to make money. And then we will animate your desire to make money with the promise that if you have it, all these other things will be added to you <laughs> um, without ever having to know another person or be known by another person. That to me is the secret kind of story of mammon. Well, and how that also gets mixed up in technology as well, because somehow in our mind, Mm -hmm. we think we have relationship because Ah. we've typed a five word sentence on someone's photo. Wow. Yes. And yes. So we have because we are built with this hunger for recognition and this hunger for relationship, but, but it turns out we can satisfy it with very thin substitutes. Mm-hmm. And yes, it can be outbound in the sense of I like type something and maybe I get a, a heart back or a, a thumbs up back. Uh, but it's inbound towards us as well, because the companies that are profiting um, from our consumption and our activities have gotten really good at personalization. So they, they can, do a decent job of pretending that they care about you, (laughs) you know, Hey, Amber, good morning. You know, this is Siri speaking, you know, Um, but it's not actually another face on the Mm. other end. It's not another person on the other end. Um, And and I think this gets, you know, part of the question that, that got me writing the book was how can we be the most powerful people in history, which in so many respects we are, um, and the loneliest people in history. Like, how mm. can those two? You would think if you had so much power at your disposal, so much money that many of us have at our disposal, that we would be much happier. And we're not much happier. We're not. We, we may be less happier, but it's because we used all that power and all that money to build a world of power without effort and abundance without mm. dependence. And that means that we are shrinking, our relationships are shrinking, and all the things that actually make people in the long run, happy and healthy, 
uh, healthy, let's say, I mean, happy comes and goes, but, but truly at home in the world, able to act meaningfully in the world, those are all eroding, even as our power and wealth increase. Mm. Yeah. And that's where you begin to write a little bit about redemptive moves. Yes. And, you know, just what, cause technology does, I mean, it, it's increased. Well, we see it. We have more anxiety now and it's not just technology. There's lots of things, but I do think that plays a major role or more lonely. <laughs> I, I mean, does. just da, 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 da. I mean, let's just go ahead yeah. and, and go down the negative list. So what are some of these redemptive moves that we can make to put us back in, I don't want to say back, but well, kind yep. of though, back into a place of relationship. Yeah. Well, I do like the word back in the sense of back to where we wanted to be the moment we were born. You know, mm. so people sometimes talk about digital natives when they talk about young people, they're like, well, you know, young people, they're just used to screens. And like, no, no one was born looking for a screen. All of us were born mm. looking for a face. So when we have mm. that instinct, let's go back. It's not so much go back to a previous time, a previous moment in human history. It's go back to that moment when, when we were first born, where we, in a sense, our desires were in the right place. We desired to be known. We desired to be loved. We desired to love, though we had a lot to learn about what that meant. And absolutely, we need to like recalibrate for that. So in the book, I talk about three, and I don't know which ones you, you want to spend the most time on. I'll just, I'll describe them super yeah, briefly. Yeah, just pick a few. <laughs> that, yeah. So I think we have to change what we ask technology to do for us. So I talk about this in the book as from moving from devices to instruments. Mm -hmm. A device is a kind of technology that basically disengages us, does things for us. So my robot vacuum is a device. I don't have to vacuum anymore. Well, that's at least what it promised me. It turns out you still have to vacuum even when you have a ro robot vacuum, but it does some of it. Yeah, or and the dog hair makes the robot vacuum turn <laughs> off and you have to clean out the dog hair. Ex so exactly. So is don't this be fooled. Yeah. So there's some questions about how much they replace this, but they do to some extent, they act on their own. Devices mm -hmm. sort of leave us with not a lot to do. And, and initially that's thrilling, but in the long run, it's really empty, you know, because we're not doing anything. So instruments are another kind of technology though. Um, musical instruments, medical instruments, scientific instruments are examples of technology that actually involves human beings very deeply in the world. Um, mm -hmm. I play the piano and um, when I play a, even if it's a digital piano, high technology, if I'm really doing it with the fullness of my musical training and especially with other people, say in a band or in some setting mm. where people are singing together, like that's a full rich human experience and it's totally appropriate to use technology there. So in a way, I think what needs to happen is for each of us to begin today asking, how can I take the devices I already have and make them more like instruments? Mm. Um, and then in the long run, we actually need some deep redesign. Our society and you know, business and uh, large-scale ventures need to, to make new kinds of things that are better mm. for us than the robot vacuum will ever be. The second move is actually a, a different kind of thing, but it's changing the, the social architecture of our world. The reality is so many people live in very isolated, like literal places. And uh, even those of us who live for a season with children in, in the home, which is a beautiful season of life, it actually turns out, you know, my children are now 21 and 25. Uh, and, they leave or, us, don't they? And they leave. And, and then you've got, if you have a, a long normal, a sort of a normally long life, you've got decades where um, the sort of typical script up till very recently would have been, you know, you have the children, but then they leave. And then the, the two people, if they manage to stay married to each other, which is not to be taken for granted. And actually when the kids leave is a time of great stress in a marriage, then somehow they're all by themselves. And 
this is not the way people have lived for mm-hmm. most of history. And so I talk in the book about um, moving back toward this ancient idea of households. Yes. A household being a, a living unit, often under the same roof, in which people really know each other like you would know family, but it extends far beyond family. Um, so I, I, you know, something like 40% of people in, on island of Manhattan, the borough of Manhattan that makes up part of New York, live in studio apartments as, mm-hmm. as one person in a tiny little apartment. This is not healthy, <laughs> nor is it healthy. I'm feeling for, stressed right now. <laughs> I know, but it's also not healthy to live in the, in a, you know, a nice, uh, quote unquote, nice single family home with only yep. two people where you barely know your neighbors. Like we, right. we were not made to live this way. And then the third thing, just for what it's worth, you know, the third move is actually kind of reshaping our dreams. So if it's like redesigning our technology, redesigning our homes and the architecture that we live in, ultimately we need to reshape our dreams. And I talk about this as moving from being charmed, which I think is what we sort of implicitly dream of a lot of, you know, if only I could just press a button and things would happen. It's kind of the dream of doing magic. I think there's a deeper dream, which is the dream of being blessed. So moving from being charmed to being blessed and realizing that the Mm. people who are going to help me um, encounter blessing in the course of my life will not be the easiest people. It's not going to be that person at the convenience store. I don't even know. It's actually going to be people who I get to face great challenge and suffering with and discover Mm. that grace is present, um, Mm. even in great suffering. Because that in the Bible, blessing very often happens uh, on the door of death or at the just after the moment of birth. And at these very tender times of, uh, of the human story are actually the times where we come most alive, mm. not the times when we're sort of living Cinderella's, you know, um, chariot or, uh, you know, living carriage, with this whatever it was. Carriage, <laughs> yes, living with C- Cinderella's carriage. That's a very temporary, all those charms are very temporary. Mm-hmm. Well, as we close out here, I think what happens often, and and I speak for myself in a very select few, but is we get overwhelmed, we're really tired of Mm. some of the negative impacts that we personally are experiencing and we're seeing from technology, but then it's overwhelming to even know what that (laughs) next step is like digging yourself out of what feels like a hole that's just getting deeper. Yeah. Do you have any words that you would speak hmm. to me and those people of what's that first step? Mm. I would so encourage, it's something I wrote about in the TechWise family. Yeah. Uh, if I could only wave a wand and exercise superpowers and change one thing in your life, which I can't do, you, you have to choose it. <laughs> That's right. But if I could only suggest one thing, it would be uh, creating a rhythm of on and off. Um, mm-hmm. So, so much of the time we just get we get locked in this superpower loop of continuous use and our design, our our devices are not these days. They're hardly designed to be turned off. Like to turn off my phone requires this extremely awkward combination of buttons that I can never remember what they are, but it is so helpful. Uh, In our family, we tried to do and still do one hour a day, one day a week and one week a year (laughs) Mm -hmm. to turn anything that that can be turned off turn it off. And if it can't be turned off, put it somewhere where it's out of sight and as much out of mind as as possible. Mm. One hour a day for us that ended up being dinner time, just even an hour where truly there are no glowing rectangles in our home, we turn off the electric lights and we light candles and it changes everything about that hour for parents and children. Um, One day a week for us that Sunday. uh, And we take one week a year where we just try to 
just park all the devices and have a week where we're just out in creation with one another. Mm. And, you know, the other thing that I've done that has made a, a ridiculously large difference is I start my days outside. So mm -hmm. I, before I look at a screen, <laughs> I walk outdoors, usually with a cup, I make a cup of tea. I did this this morning. I walk outside today. It was 32 degrees outside where I was. And I stood in that cold, slightly cold air as the sun was rising without any technological apparatus near me <laughs> and just yeah. felt what it was to be a human being. And I have to say like, the spiritual benefits of a few minutes at the beginning of the day like that, rather than plunging right into the busyness, it, it reframes the whole day, at least mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. So yeah, you got to have a rhythm because without that, you'll never actually discover what you're missing. And, and then we'll just keep on the hamster wheel, but there's another, there's another way. And you, then you go back inside or you, get to the end of that hour and there's some things to get done, but your relationship to the devices has changed and they can become more instruments than they were mm -hmm. before. I love it. Well, thank you, Andy, so much. As you all know, you can get books anywhere and this one is no different. And so the life we're looking for, go find it, obviously TechWise family. Is it andycrouch.com where you can find all of your stuff? You'll find links to yeah everything. Andy Dash okay. Crouch. Uh, Andy Dash Crouch. Between the two things, andycrouch.com with a dash. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. I am grateful. I am grateful too. Thank you so much. I could have talked to Andy for hours. So if you're like me and you enjoyed today's conversation, go ahead and order The Life You Were Looking For. And I also recommend reading TechWise Family. Those links, along with the free resource, eight books that were influential in ways that surprised me, can be found in the show notes, which are on the podcast player you are currently using to listen to this episode. Press pause and scroll down. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.